So the plan was you were going to pick up Susan at midnight, go over to the Chateau Marmont, and then she was going to be going back and forth all the way to the Beverly Hills area to feed and let out her three dogs. Is that your testimony? I'm saying I made that statement because Andrew Jarecki asked me to make that statement. And you are aware, Mr. Durst, that in Susan's house, that police found the same kind of stamps as you put on the cadaver note, correct? I might be charged with murder by Janine Puro, but I don't think Susan would have had anything to do with it because if Janine Pirro had an investigator actually interview Susan, he would conclude that Susan's full of shit. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Thursday, August 26th, Robert Durst took the stand for his sixth day of rigorous cross-examination. John Lewin was instructed by Judge Wyndham that Thursday would be his penultimate day of cross. In light of this time restriction, the prosecutor arrived in court with a laser-sharp focus and a battery of questions aimed to pierce the defendant's alibis. On today's episode, we will examine the deft tactics Lewin employed as he confronted Durst with the logistical incongruities of the defendant's alleged staycation with Susan Berman, Durst's own incriminating statements about the cadaver note, and shocking evidence from the crime scene. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Early in the day, John Lewin presented Durst with a surprising hypothetical, one that the defendant was eager to answer. I want you to assume for a second, you'll like this hypothetical, I want you to assume for a second that you did not kill your wife, Kathy. I have no problem assuming (laughs) that I did not kill my wife, Kathy. And I did not kill my wife, Kathy. Okay, so I want you to assume for a moment you did not kill your wife, Kathy. Even if that were true, wouldn't you agree that the fact that your best friend is out there telling numerous people that you killed Kathy and that she helped cover it up would have represented a threat, especially when the prosecutor is out there trying to make a career for herself, that Susan would have represented a threat to you whether or not what she was saying was true. Susan could not subpoena me. I don't see what you mean, a threat. Let me explain. So if Susan Berman is out there and she's telling people, as you've said, that you killed your wife, you told her that, and that she helped you cover it up. If Janine Pirro is looking to charge you, if Janine Pirro talks to Susan Berman, then that's going to mean that Janine Pirro can basically say, I've got Bob Durst's best friend who's been out there for years saying he killed his wife and helped cover it up. 
would you agree that even if Susan's statement is untrue, just her going around and saying it and you being aware of it is a tremendous threat to you? I think that if Susan was formally interviewed, the person doing the interviewing would decide that she's not reliable. You would agree, though, Mr. Durst, that if you've got a DA that you've said is out there trying to charge you with something, looking to get her ticket to the Attorney General's office in New York, then wouldn't you agree it might not matter whether Susan is actually credible? The DA might just decide, I got all this circumstantial evidence plus his best friend, I'm going to charge him. No, I did not. I might be charged with murder by Janine Pirro, but I don't think Susan would have had anything to do with it because if Janine Pirro had an investigator actually interview Susan, he would conclude that Susan's full of shit. Well, Mr. Durst, haven't you basically just testified that given what you have described as Janine Pirro's naked ambition, that it wouldn't really matter whether Susan was, quote, full of shit, you would be up shit's creek because your situation would be that your best friend is telling investigators you murdered your wife and she covered it up, correct? That's a far on the question. I'll sustain it. It's a, it's a poetic in an ugly way, but just because a witness said that doesn't mean that All right. you may. I'll rephrase. In this line of questioning, Lewin used Durst's previous testimony to imply that even if Durst didn't kill Kathy, he still had motive to murder Susan. Lewin then built upon this reasoning by confronting Durst with a statement he made to Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling. Mr. Durst, during your 2010 interview with Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, do you recall being asked whether it made sense for people to suspect you of involvement in Susan's murder? No. RD 401 12 13 10. Oh, sure. I mean, because she was my spokesman. All of a sudden, she's dead right after Janine Pirro's doing the investigation of me. Mm -hmm. I shut her up. So, Mr. Durst, that's what you said, correct? Correct. And you would agree that that motive would be the same motive that I asked you about earlier this morning about Susan Berman potentially talking to Janine uh, Pirro, correct? You asked about Susan Berman being interviewed by Janine Pirro, and I said if Janine Pirro interviewed Susan, she would find that Susan was not credible. Well, Mr. Durst, but you agree that you were asked if it made sense to you that people suspected you of Susan's murder, and your response was that, yeah, that makes sense because she was my spokesperson. All of a sudden, she's dead right after Janine Pirro is doing the investigation of me, that I shut her up. That's what you said, correct? Those are your words. Correct. So aren't you, Mr. Durst, in that statement, aren't you saying to Andrew directly, that's exactly what occurred? that in fact you shut Susan Berman up because she had information and you were afraid of Janine Pirro. Isn't that what you're saying in that exchange? No. At this point, Lewin shifted subjects to a piece of physical evidence from the crime scene, evidence that Durst claimed he had not seen before. You are aware, Mr. Durst, that Susan Berman had the same kind of stamps 
in her house as the stamp that was on the cadaver note. You're aware of that, correct? What do you mean a stamp? Well, you placed a stamp on the cadaver note to mail it, correct? Postage stamp. Yes, I mailed the cadaver note. And you are aware, Mr. Durst, that in Susan's house, that police found the same kind of stamps as you put on the cadaver note, correct? This is the first time I'm being told that. Sustained. Under what grounds, Your Honor? Subtract non-evidence. You may produce the evidence and confront the, the witness with the evidence. All right. Or, or perhaps it's already... Okay. Mr. Durst, now, you would agree you gave a pretty detailed recitation of everything that you did, correct? I'm talking about at, at Susan's. You were pretty detailed, right? Pretty detailed. Whatever pretty detailed means. Are you agreeing or disagreeing? I don't know if I should agree or disagree because I do not know what pretty detailed means. So what I'm asking you is you would agree that you described step by step what you did from entering the house to leaving the house to thinking about calling 911. You described all that in detail, correct? If what I said was in detail, then it was in detail. All right, so Mr. Durst, is there a reason why, given all the details you gave, that you have no memory of making the decision to write the cadaver note at the house and then getting the paper envelope and stamps from Susan's? I definitely, absolutely did not write the cadaver note in the house. Now, my question is, though, is if you've said that you might have gotten the paper the envelope and the stamp from Susan's house, correct? I do not recall getting a stamp from Susan's house. I do not recall getting a stamp anywhere. And I do not recall where I got the envelope. In the SUV, I had writing paper and a pen. Did you have an envelope and a stamp in the SUV? No. So. Mr. Durst, on the left side, you recognize the cadaver note, correct? Correct. That's what you sent, correct? Correct. And obviously, you put the stamp on there at some point, correct? Correct. And on the right side are stamps from Susan Berman's day planner from her house. Do you see those? Yes. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that they appear to be the same kind of stamp? Yes. So my question to you is, when you say you do not remember getting the stamp from Susan Berman's house, are you saying, you know what, I'm pretty sure I didn't get it there, or are you saying, you know what, I have no idea, I could have gotten in there, I just don't remember? Which is it? I never knew up until this minute that the stamps in Susan Berman's house with the same kind of stamp that I put on the cadaver note. I don't remember taking a stamp from Susan Berman's house. I also don't remember getting a stamp any place else. So is it fair to say then that when you look at this, you easily could have taken a stamp from Susan's house? It's possible.
Durst has previously testified that he wrote the cadaver note after leaving Susan's house, finding a payphone, and calling 911 only to hang up on the dispatcher. If Durst used a stamp from Susan's house, then it's reasonable to believe that he intended to send the note prior to leaving the home, which calls his entire narrative into question. Lewin continued to press Durst on the topic of the cadaver note, specifically regarding his previous statements about the note's author. All right, I want to talk specifically about the cadaver note. You have now conceded, obviously, that you are the author of the cadaver note, correct? Correct. For 20 years, though, you adamantly denied writing the note, correct? For 20 years, I denied writing it. You denied that during interviews with Andrew Jarecki, correct? Correct. In addition to denying it, have you repeatedly stated, Mr. Durst, that whoever wrote the cadaver note had to be Susan's killer? I said that to Andrew. And, Mr. Durst, were you definitive in what you said about it? I don't know what you mean, was I definitive? RD 025-121310. I mean, first of all, somebody had a plan to do this. They had to go to her house, um, do what they did. I mean, if I was going to rob somebody or burglarize a house, I wouldn't. And if if you, they'd been in Susie's, then they wouldn't pick Susie because there was nothing there of value. I mean, I assume her. Jewelry was there. I have no idea if she hid it, but that's the wrong house to burglarize. And, and now you're taking this big risk. What's the risk? What? Which, which big risk? You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. So I, I just, somebody would have to be my, my rabbi, although I don't see him getting involved in any kind of a killing. He might feel that it's that important that, the, that it be buried right away, but I think you've got to be pretty, pretty, pretty Jewish, religious, to feel that way. That's what you said, correct, Mr. Durst? That's what I said. And at the time that you were saying to Andrew Jarecki that it was a note that only the killer could have written, you knew while you were saying that that you had written it, correct? Correct. And Mr. Durst, you also pointed out that the killer, you have to be pretty religious to feel that it's that important that Susan be buried right away. Do you recall saying that? Yeah. And Mr. Durst, you were saying that because you were aware that you're Jewish, correct, Mr. Durst? Correct. And Susan Berman is Jewish, correct? Correct. And you were aware that under Jewish tradition, the body has to be buried very quickly after death, correct? Correct. And you would have known that that would have been important to Susie, correct? Susan wasn't that religious, so I don't know. Well, Mr. Durst, you are someone who has expressed an interest in the Jewish religion, correct? Correct. And it would be important for you that Susan was buried, according to Jewish tradition, near the time that she was killed, correct? Correct. And Mr. Durst, you mentioned to Andrew Jarecki, you're the one who brought up the idea that this was a note that only the killer could have written, correct? I think he brought it up with me. Do you agree? I just played you a clip that had your voice and Andrew Jarecki speaking, and you would agree that clip is unedited, correct? That's what you said and that's what he said, correct? 
I accept that it's unedited. Okay, and in that clip, you were admitting, Mr. Durst, that the reason that you sent the cadaver note is that you wanted Susan's body recovered, correct? Correct. But, Mr. Durst, you are disputing the idea that the first statement that you made, that it was a note that only the killer could have written, you're admitting that you said that, but you're now saying that isn't true. Is that correct? I'm saying I made that statement because Andrew Jarecki asked me to make that statement. Well, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you said the same thing during your 2015 interview in New Orleans with me? I have no knowledge of saying what I told Andrew in 2010, being what I told you. RD 372-315-15. First of all, you agree, as you sit here today, you agree that whoever wrote that letter, they killed Susan. Agree? You see, I don't know that. I mean, maybe there were two people who killed Susan. It okay. doesn't have to be one person. There could be two people. One pe one person could go into the house to shoot Susan, and the other person could be the driver. Oh, oh, oh okay. No, let me, let me, this is what I mean. Whether the person was the shooter or the driver, whoever wrote the note was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. That's what you said, correct, Mr. Durst? I told you what you wanted to hear. Well, isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that as you are making these statements, both times you're saying a note that only the killer could have written, that you are saying this, Mr. Durst, because you knew that in fact that was a note written by the killer. Isn't that why you said that? I did not know who was a note written by the killer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After confronting Durst with his own damning statements, Lewin inquired about the defendant's alleged plans to provide Susan Berman with housing before her death. When is the first time that you ever mentioned the plan to have Susan move in with you uh, to your place on Telegraph in San Francisco? So this would be in 1999, at and the end of the year, on a telephone call with Susan. I told Susan that she was right I would get bored in a small town like Humboldt County, and I had decided to move to San Francisco. And Susan said, take me with you. I've got lots of contacts in San Francisco. Did you discuss your plans with anybody other than Susan? The architect, Mike Yoshida. And I think I told Debbie. Your wife, Debbie, correct? I think I told Debbie, I know I told, told Mike Yoshida, 
I think I probably told Diane Boucher the same thing. Have you spoken to Mike Yoshida to confirm that in fact you told him this information about Susan moving up there with you? You had any conversation with Mike Yoshida? You're asking me if I've spoken to Mike Yoshida recently? Yes. It turns out Mike Yoshida is dead. Can you describe what information you have about Mike Yoshida being dead? I was told by our investigator that Mike Yoshida is dead. Your Honor, we have the following stipulation. Mr. Chesnoff is going to stipulate that originally Mr. Durst was told by their investigator that Mike Yoshida is dead. He will further stipulate that Mike Yoshida is alive. Is that correct, Mr. There is a dead Mike Yoshida. There was a dead. Yes, we are stipulating, Your Honor. Thank you. The fact that Mike Yoshida was alive appeared to catch Durst off guard. Lewin capitalized on the moment by showing Durst a day planner that investigators found at Susan's house in order to challenge key elements of Durst's staycation story. Mr. Durst, the original plan was for you to get there late on the 22nd. We talked sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. And then for you and Susan to go over to the Chateau Marmont, correct? Correct. What was going to happen to the dogs when you were staying at the Chateau Marmont? Niles Brenner was going to take care of them, was going to walk them and feed them. Is that a detail you've ever mentioned before? Now wait a minute. While we were in Big Sur and the 27th and the 28th, Niles Brenner was going to walk and feed the dogs. While we were staying in Chateau Marmont, I assume Susan intended to walk and feed the dogs. So the plan was you were going to pick up Susan at midnight, go over the Chateau Marmont, and then she was going to be going back and forth all the way to the Beverly Hills area to feed and let out her three dogs. Is that your testimony? You're making it seem like the Chateau Marmont and Susan's house are hundreds of miles apart. It's a short drive, five or ten minutes, whatever it is. You think to go from West Hollywood to Beverly Hills is a five-minute drive? Is that Ten you? minutes, fifteen minutes, whatever you want, that is what I think Susan was planning on doing. So your testimony now is there really isn't an answer. You're simply saying that Whatever will fit into your narrative, that's what you were going to do. Is that what your last answer meant? Mr. Durst, what were you going to do with those three dogs during the entire trip up to Northern California? We were going to Northern California on the 27th, and Susan was going to get back to Los Angeles in the afternoon of the 28th. And how was she getting back? She was going to fly. And were you paying for her flight, I assume? I'm sure she would have paid for her own flight. Are you aware that Susan Berman had money at that time to be paying for flights? It, it, it never came up. We made the plans to drive up. and we got to San Francisco, we were going to meet with Mike Yoshida for two hours. She had asked me when she should schedule her flight, 
And I said, any time after four. And Susan knew about these plans well in advance, correct? Yes. Mr. Durst, are you aware of Susan Berman making any flight reservations to fly from San Francisco to Los Angeles? I'm not aware that she made reservations or not. Are you aware of her making any arrangements to have somebody pick her up at the airport? I was going to drive her to the airport. What she was going to do in Los Angeles, I really did not know. And you've already testified that this trip up to Big Sur in San Francisco was going to start on what day? When were you leaving? The 27th of December. Mr. Durst, we're going to show you Susan's day planner, and we're going to put up various entries, and I want you to look at them. You recognize this to be Susan's handwriting, correct? It looks like it could be Susan's handwriting. On the first page, do you recognize the name Susan Berman and the phone number? I think the landline had a different number to it. Do you recognize the address? 1527 Benedict was her address. Let's talk about December 27, which is Wednesday. Would you agree that on the 27th and 28th, according to your testimony, Susan is supposed to be with you up in Big Sur in San Francisco? Is that correct? We were supposed to leave around noon and meet friends of her for dinner in the Pantheon at 8 p.m. So if then you go, we were going to go to the Big Sur Inn. Right, going back to the 27th, she's got plans at 11 a.m. with Tom Patton. Do you see that? I see that. Can you explain, Mr. Durst, how it is that she has plans in her planner book on the 27th at 11 a.m. with Tom Patton, and yet you're supposed to be up in Big Sur in San Francisco with her? Can you explain that? For all I know, her appointment with Tom Patty was on the telephone. Okay, let's go back to the, to the uh, 28th for a second. So, she's got a hair appointment with David Eisenman on the 28th. Do you see that crossed out at all? No. How's she going to make that hair appointment on the 28th when she's up in San Francisco? She wasn't going to be able to see David Eisenman. Mr. Durst? We're going to go turn to the 22nd. This is the day that you originally were supposed to meet Susie Berman. Is that correct? Correct. Um, and I'm not going to go through everything on the 22nd, but it says at 4.30, it says Rich Markey. Would you agree? I don't see Markey. We're talking right here. That's Markey. Well, if that's Marky, that's Marky. It doesn't read like Marky to me. So, Mr. Durst, there also is a notation that says, call Ellen right below, it looks like. Do you see that? That looks like call Ellen. Yes, that, 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 that's what I said. Do you see any notation on the 22nd, Mr. Durst, that references you? I do not specifically see anything describing the fact that I was going to arrive that evening. We're going to show you the 23rd, Mr. Durst. This is when you are supposed to be on a staycation with Susan. Would you agree that the 23rd, what we can see here is glasses, and then underneath, doctor someone. We have something about a doctor, but you would agree nothing about a staycation or you, correct? 
There's nothing about our staycation on the pages you've shown me. So, Mr. Durst, can you explain why it is that in Susan's Day Planner, we see not one entry involving you, the staycation, Big Sur, San Francisco, the Chateau Marmont, or an airline flight during the time when you are supposed to be with her both in Los Angeles, Big Sur, and San Francisco. Can you explain that? Susan kept her friends apart. She could have had a separate listing someplace where she listed everything for our staycation. Mr. Durst, is it your testimony that you believe that Susan Berman had a separate planner book purely for your staycation? I believe that's possible, yes. Does that sound reasonable to you? Yes, that sounds reasonable. In the afternoon, Lewin moved on from Susan's planner and pivoted back to the cadaver note. When the prosecutor mentioned Durst's stipulation that he authored the note, Durst was quick to claim that the 2019 stipulation was not the first time he made that admission. I had acknowledged writing the cadaver note long before 2019. When and to whom had you acknowledged writing the cadaver note long before 2019? Stuart Altman. So you told this information to Stuart. Was this in an attorney-client relationship, or was this as a friend? It was to my friend, the attorney, Stuart Altman. We're not asking. Forget about lawyers for a minute. Is there anybody else that you had told about the cadaver note you said a long time before 2019? Who other than your attorneys? Susie Giordano. When did you tell Susie Giordano that you had written the cadaver note? Shortly after I was arrested, when she visited me in, in Louisiana. You're aware, Mr. Durst, that Susie Giordano testified under oath that you had never told her anything about the cadaver note. Is that correct? You heard that testimony, correct? I heard the testimony. I don't recall whether she said anything about the cadaver note. Mr. Durst, is that why you gave this woman $350,000? Because she had that info on you? No. Joining us now to discuss Thursday's testimony by Robert Durst is Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, welcome back. Hey, thank you. So let's start by talking about Mike Yoshida, the appearance of Mike Yoshida yet again in the testimony. Charlie, remind us who Mike Yoshida was and is, apparently, and what the significance of that moment was. Uh, Yoshida was an architect that Bob hired after he sold his house in Trinidad in Northern California, and he wanted to move to San Francisco. So he had bought a townhouse uh, that needed renovation. It hadn't been touched in many, many years. So Yoshida was the guy that was supposed to come up with a plan for creating the house that Bob says he and Susan were going to live in. Susan was going to have the ground floor. Bob was going to have the upper two floors. And Brittany, tell us about your experience of that moment in the testimony and also the significance of Mike Yoshida to 
Bob's testimony regarding a staycation that Susan and Bob were planning. Absolutely. There have been a number of really great reversals that we've witnessed during this trial, but usually there's a lot more air in between them. This happened in a matter of seconds where Lewin is going through Bob's plan or the alleged plan that he had for this staycation he was supposed to have with Susan and really struck me that anytime Lewin has asked Bob, who did you talk to? In just about every case, the person is either somebody who can't testify, like his wife, or somebody who is deceased. So following the script, he announced that Mike Yoshida was dead. And then just a few moments later, there's a stipulation that actually, no, he is alive. So I think there was a real moment of shock among anybody watching, thinking, okay, well, are we going to hear from him? And like so many other parts of the staycation, the idea that this was actually a plan starts to kind of fall apart. And so that's a natural segue into the blockbuster moment and the blockbuster piece of evidence that came up a bit almost right after this part of the testimony. Charlie, tell us about Susan's day planner and its significance to the case. This one I just love because no one had ever mentioned the day planner before. Uh, it's been 20 years since Susan was murdered and and we thought we knew everything about the crime scene. But lo and behold, here's another piece of evidence, more or less hiding in plain sight. So it has that whole, the end of the month in December, patiently the prosecutor goes through page by page, day by day. And Susan's, you know, she's got an appointment with her hairdresser. She's, she's got a, an appointment on Christmas with her cousin. She's, uh, there, there's all these mentions of her, what her week was going to be like, yet no mention of Bob and this staycation. Now, we know that Susan had told friends in Los Angeles that she expected Bob to come visit sometime during the holidays. It was very vague. There was no dates. There's no mention, again, of Susan going on a staycation with Bob, uh, going to the chateau, or, you know, riding up to Big Sur. The whole thing seemed to unravel just because there's nothing in the book. Right. And a few other beats that just amazed me. Bob said that Susan's agent, Niall Brenner, was going to come look after the dogs while they went up to Big Sur. No mention of the dogs being walked or taken care of by Niles Brenner in the day planner. Also, Susan's hairdresser's card and his name were in the day planner on the 28th, I think, the day that they were supposed to meet with Mike Yoshida up in San Francisco. Again, the dovetailing of little bits of evidence. And I remember at that moment feeling that this was the closest that we are going to get to Susan Berman actually testifying in this trial. You could almost hear her voice planning all this stuff out. Brittany, what struck you about all of that? 
Oh, that is such a great way to say it, Carrie. One other thing that really struck me in that sequence was Bob said that, well, you know, I don't really know what she recorded and what she chose not to, but there was a line for groceries. Like this was the period of time she was planning on buying groceries. That's a pretty small detail to keep track of. And yet the plans to stay with him for a few days no mention of that whatsoever. This felt to me the most concrete evidence against him. And it's so interesting because I don't think anybody saw this coming. And really, if it hadn't been for the way that Bob Durst has chosen to approach his defense, you know, giving this incredibly convoluted story about what was supposed to happen, that's how they were able to enter this. I think he really shot himself in the foot. And there was one other thing. I can't give the name of my source on this, but there was something in that book that brought me back to Susan's letter to Bob. This was a letter that was written on November 5th, about a month and a half before Susan's death. And in the letter to Bob, she said, my Showtime deal went to the next step just in the nick of time. Now it looks like it will go to pilot, but I won't know until February. And I called a source that was prompted by something I saw in that book. And I learned that Showtime was likely passing on Susan's project. And there was something in that book where Susan was going to find out and never had the opportunity to find out that her deal was not going to go through. It was an amazing moment for me just to bring all of this information that we've developed in making this podcast together. Charlie, anything else that stuck out to you about the evidence that was presented in that part of the testimony? And let's not forget the stamps. Along with the day book were, was a block of stamps on Susan's desk. And they put an image up on the screen in the courtroom. On one side was the block of stamps, and on the other was the cadaver note envelope. And the stamp on the envelope was a match for the block of stamps. So suddenly it seemed one mystery was cleared up. Right. And not only that, but I believe they said that the stamps that they recovered were found in Susan's planner, which would lead you to believe that Bob must have opened the planner to locate the stamps. It is so incredible to me that he did not have the forethought to take the planner with him. Although, as we've discussed, this is a man who left a piece of mail that had his address in the bag where he disposed a body. So, Or as Lewin said, just because you killed three people doesn't mean you're good at it. <laughs> it's so macabre. So let's conclude by talking about Bob throwing his most loyal friends under the bus. On Thursday, it was his good friend and Love Nest co-occupant, Susan Giordano. Charlie, tell us about how Bob threw Susan under the bus. Bob has come in for criticism for the prosecution because every time he identifies someone who could corroborate his story, it turns out that that individual is either dead or one of his lawyers. And so I think he was reaching out for somebody who could corroborate that? So when Lewin said, who did you tell about the cadaver note? Was there anyone prior to your suddenly admitting it at the end of 2019? And he comes back and he says, yeah, I told Susan Giordano, which puts her on the hot seat. Didn't she tell the court in sworn testimony 
that Bob didn't tell her any of these things. Absolutely. Brittany, you've had a lot of thoughts about the Susan Giordano testimony. What did you think when you heard Bob so cavalierly toss her under the uh, wheels of that greyhound? Oh, I thought it was the punchline at the end of her five days of testimony where, you know, she's just denying, denying, denying that they've ever spoken about anything to do with his alleged crimes. And here we go. It seemed to be fairly obvious to anybody who's been following this that there must have been some additional reason why he has given her the hundreds of thousands of dollars that he's given her. And I think we now have our answer about that. I'm very curious if they they bring her back and if she has to answer because she's faced with now a very difficult choice. Does she perjure herself in order to protect her friend or does she maintain her story and send the person who's been keeping her afloat that much closer to a guilty verdict? That seems like a fitting place to end today's chat. Join us for the next episode where we begin the final week of Robert Durst's testimony and uh, the last stretch of the trial of Robert Durst here on our podcast, Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Bartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Bartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. <laughs>